Hello, and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Aaron. I'm Kate. And we will be learning about national anthems. Each week, we will choose a new country at random. We will learn a little bit about this country, and then we will listen to their anthem. After listening, we will rate the anthem based on several criteria, and we will see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. We don't want you to think because of the title that we are huge fans of O Canada just because we took the lyrics from it. In fact, we plan to dunk on it pretty much constantly, and uh, we don't expect it to finish highly in the rankings at all. I'm excited for this week. Yeah, this week is a bit of a unique one. Not that either of us are particularly seasoned <laughs> world travelers, but this is the first country that either of us have been to because I have spent about a week and a half in Switzerland uh, about three or four years ago. Uh, I was not, I spent a day in Geneva, but mainly just around the hotel we were staying in. I spent mainly time in Zermatt, which is like a mountain tourist village in a ski resort. Uh, beautiful, but not necessarily a good place to learn about the larger history of the country. No, but the chocolate you brought me back was... Oh my God, that chocolate was world. insane. You gave it to me and I was like, I'm going to share this with people. I did not. Yeah. I did not share it. I ate the whole thing by myself. <laughs> the The food there is incredible. And I'm hoping with my attempt at Swiss food tonight that I can get anywhere close to how good the real thing is. I'm excited for that too. But we'll get there when we get there. Yeah. So let's just introduce what we're talking about for those of us who maybe don't know a lot about Switzerland. It is a small central European country. Uh, the, the countries that border it, we've got on the west is France, on the north is Germany, on the east is Austria and Liechtenstein, and on the south is Italy. It is a landlocked country. Cool. Uh, so it's made up of 26 individual cantons, which function sort of like states or provinces. They're the, the individual regions that make up the larger country. And uh, more detailed histories than the one I'm about to outline to you will get into a lot of depth about, you know, this is when Switzerland had 10 cantons, and then this one got oh, split yeah. into two, and that made it 11, and then two more were admitted, and now it's 13. Like, I'm not going to get into the hard and fast numbers <laughs> of everything that's going on throughout the years, that's but okay. modern Switzerland has 26 cantons okay. with local sort of state governments. There's one for every letter of the alphabet. There you go. They, just, they didn't just call them A, B, C, D. No. EF, okay. No, like Geneva and Zurich <laughs> right. and they Bern, have, yeah. They have actual names? That's cool. That's uh, cool. So the earliest evidence of humans in the region dates back about 400,000 years, though there wouldn't be permanent settlements in the region until just after the Ice Age. So that's about 11,000 years ago. That's a long time. Yeah, which I thought the, the first evidence of anyone sort of building a small society in Switzerland lines up roughly with how long the city of Jericho has continually existed. Wow. Just to, to jump back again to Palestine and how gobsmacked I am by yeah. how long the city of Jericho has been around. I remain gobsmacked. The Lascaux Caves, that's in France, right? I don't know. Okay. I'll look it up after. Okay. It's I'm just, not familiar, actually, so I, I don't know at all. So there's these, like, ancient cave paintings called the Lascaux okay, Caves, sure. and I'm pretty sure it's in France. Okay. But um, anyway, basically, it's just, like, early evidence of people 
being around and making art on the walls. I think though they had to close them to the public because people were breathing in there too much and it was messing up. The, oh, okay. The whole preservation system. Anyway, that's not about right now. But we we did see some cave dwellers, and maybe it's like for, because France and Switzerland border on each other. Perhaps it's some of that, like some of those caves in the Alps, where that's what I was wondering a little it, bit. It sort of crosses over between the two. Yeah. Um, but the earliest people before these settlements, there were nomadic hunters who would use caves in the Alps as bases for their hunting operations, basically. Cool. Uh, and the earliest human settlements are these houses made of wood that like stood on stilts along the lakes, the, the shores of lakes. That's really neat. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting. I find it interesting because obviously you need water. If you're going to have a society, I, how people interact with the water. I think the idea of kind of going into it and building your house is pretty cool. And Switzerland, like, I mean, we, we get all hype about our lakes here in Canada. (laughs) I don't, know how many lakes we have but i would be genuinely shocked if our like lakes per thousand kilometers or whatever even gets close to switzerland because it is a tiny country with over seven thousand lakes in it wow like i know canada's like at least in the hundreds i i would be surprised if we didn't have more lakes than switzerland but like per per area area. i think they've got a soundly beat i would i would believe that we should maybe look that up yeah i'll i'll try to find number of lakes in canada that would be cool on the break uh So starting in roughly 800 BCE, Switzerland, well, Western Switzerland was part of Gaul and was inhabited by Celtic peoples, while Eastern Switzerland was inhabited by a group of people known as the Ratians. And the the Ratians I hadn't heard of before, but they serve a really interesting purpose throughout the history of Switzerland. They're a group of Alpine tribes that had united in Eastern Switzerland and Austria. They were likely closely related to the Etruscan peoples. Now, do you remember who the Etruscans were from history class? Wait, wait. Um, I know this because I saw that opera. Okay. The Rape of Lucretia and in it, there's some Etruscan guy. Yeah. It's Italian, right? Yeah, they were essentially the dominant force on the Italian peninsula before the rise of the Roman kingdom. Yeah. Like the Etruscans are the people that, you know, Romulus and Remus are going to yeah. conquer and take <laughs> the the Italian land from. Okay. Uh, so this is like the kingdom of Rome, not even the Roman Republic. N- we're not even thinking <laughs> about the empire yet. No. Okay. Um, but the, uh, the Ratians likely have some sort of relation to the Etruscans cultural language. I'm not sure exactly how deep that goes or even how sure we are of that, but Mm. that was something I saw talked about in trying to learn about the Ratians. So a lot of the information pieced together on this Celtic era of Switzerland is gleaned from an archeological site that's known as Latin or the shallows, I guess Mm. is what it translates to. Okay. Uh, and that is at Lake Neuchatel in Switzerland. And this whole subset of, I think it's like southeastern Gaul kind of, is is known as the Latin culture. Like the Latin subset of the Celtic culture. Okay. Named for this archaeological site. Um, and these, at least the people in sort of the Swiss area were particularly noted for their excellent ceramics and metalwork. Huh. I don't think I realized that the Celtic 
stuff was in Switzerland. Gaul, yeah, Gaul is further from where we associate the Celts with than yeah. I think most people realize. I never thought of that or learned they're, about it. Because they're going to get chased out by the Romans. Right, right. That makes sense. So with the Germanic tribes starting to move into the region, the Swiss Celts would um, attempt to migrate out of this region into sort of the further heart of Gaul in about 5860 BCE. But this is also right around the time that Julius Caesar is launching the Gallic Wars to conquer <laughs> the whole region for the Republic. So basically all of Switzerland would then be annexed into the Roman Empire by Augustus in 15 BCE. Okay. Uh, it's under the Roman period then that a lot of Switzerland's largest cities are first settled. So we're talking Geneva, Zurich, Bern, like a lot of these see the first settlement happening on that area during the Roman period. That's so long ago. Yeah. That's and incredible. a lot a lot of the countryside during this time was developed in the sort of Roman villa style that mm -hmm. we learn so much about. And that's part of, I think, a concentrated effort by the Romans to spread their culture yeah. to this region and really make them a, a cohesive part of the Roman Empire. So from the first first from the first century <laughs> through the third century CE, the Roman occupation was pretty peaceful for the most part. Mm. Roman culture had successfully spread to a lot of the region. The grapevine had been introduced to local agriculture and it was a really prosperous period. Uh, Christianity would begin to spread through here, largely in the fourth century. And th this is a bit of a weird quirk with my sources where all of the sources I looked at went, uh, Christianity spread in the fourth century as a result of this, this religious group known as the Theban Legion being executed. And then everyone also went, but that probably didn't happen. And it's like, what? well, that you can't <laughs> you can't both use it as a reason for why Christianity so, spread and then claim it didn't have. So I did it was find a rumor that made well, Christianity spread. Maybe. I think that's what some people are positing. I did okay. find a couple sort of scholarly sources positing that maybe this immensely important historical event that everyone talks about, maybe it actually happened. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's weird, though. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that weird little quirk because everyone brought up the Theban Legion and then was just as quick to be like the Theban Legion never existed. And I don't know why they were in every source. Yeah, that's that's a weird one. That's a weird one. Uh, so in the third century CE, the region was invaded by Germanic peoples who would push the Romans from the area. There was about 150 years there where the Romans were working to reclaim the area, but really this is the end of the Roman Empire's influence in Switzerland. So during this period, Western Switzerland is occupied by a number of Germanic tribes, including the Burgundians, uh, and that's the region right across the border in France is the Burgundy say, region. What about Burgundy? Cool. Uh, so the lands settled by the Burgundians in the 5th century would make up roughly what is modern French-speaking Switzerland. Okay. Uh, the Alemannian people would settle along the Rhine slightly after, and the Alemannians moved east of the Rhine, forcing the remaining descendants of the Celts and the Rhaetians into the far east of the country. 
so it's in this far east of the country where the language Romanche is most widely spoken. And Romanche is the the least widely spoken of Switzerland's four official languages. It is actually a Ratian language that is still spoken uh, mostly just in this this one area of Switzerland. Because they speak a lot of languages in, it's, in Switzerland, uh, right? It's German, Italian, French, and Romanche Jesus. are their four official languages. That's amazing. It's so um, cool they have four official languages. Makes school complicated, though, yeah, maybe. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, well, I think the cantons are, you know, a German canton, a French canton. Yeah. Um, so the the Alemannians are where this Romanche language has been passed down okay. from. Okay, that's so interesting. Uh, in the 5th century, the region would come under control of the Frankish Empire and would really become part of Charlemagne's Holy Roman Empire in the 9th century. So it's through this period that French and Italian-speaking peoples really start moving into the Swiss Alps, Mm -hmm. and that causes this whole period of prosperous trade between French and Italian and German-speaking people across the Alps, where there, as far as I can tell, there were some minor squabbles like, this mountain's ours, no, it's ours. But ultimately, they sort of all pushed up against each other in the Alps and just traded everything through those passes. Wow, that's really cool. So this, again, was a really... Switzerland is a really rich country, and this is one of many very prosperous eras we're going to see for the nation. Yeah. Uh, It is also during this period that we will begin to outline what would become the cantons of Switzerland. Mm. Uh, Charlemagne greatly expanded the Roman Catholic Church within Switzerland, appointing... Frankish bishops and building churches to try to establish a sort of cultural unity under the Catholic Church, not too different from what the Romans were doing not so long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Charlemagne died, his son Louis uh, Louis the Pious ruled for a while, and then when Louis the Pious died, his three sons were in open war over the pieces of the empire. Okay. This would be settled in 843 in the Treaty of Verdun. Uh, so this was the treaty where the the grandsons of Charlemagne settle their open war and divide up the remainders of the Carolingian Empire between themselves. Okay. Uh, and Louis the Pious, too, I thought it was interesting. He wasn't Charlemagne's firstborn. I think oh. he was Charlemagne's fifth I think it was Charlemagne's fifth child and third son, if I'm not mistaken. That's weird, kind of. A lot of the sources I looked at like to uh, really gloss over Charlemagne's many wives and (laughs) and how many children and he had by each and who they were. But his firstborn son was, this is just a brief tangent, I'm going to go on because I thought it was fun. I'm intrigued. Uh, The firstborn (laughs) son was a guy named Pepin the Hunchback who revolted. Yeah, we've got another Pepin. That's a great name. (laughs) He revolted against his father's rule. He wanted to take the throne for himself from Louis the Pious. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was, uh, sorry, from Charlemagne. Mm -hmm. He was originally sentenced to death, but... I like to imagine Charlemagne feeling a wave of fatherly guilt, and he ultimately exiled Pepin to a monastery. Okay. 
this is the inspiration for the Stephen Schwartz musical Pippin. Loosely. Loosely. Oh, okay, for a Pippin sec- makes no sense. It goes to some weird places, but it is very loosely based off of Pippin the so Hunchback. For a sec, I thought you were going to get into like the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I was no. going to be like, no, it, no, it's not that. <laughs> It's definitely not that. That doesn't sound like the Hunchback of Notre Dame to you? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, that's too bad for Pippin. He was exiled. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, was lived out the rest of his life as a monk, as far as I can tell. So let me get this straight, though. Charlemagne is this like big old Catholic guy with a bunch of wives? Charlemagne? Well, I, I don't think all at the same time. No. Okay. Um, yeah, he... We will get into Charlemagne... Many a time will we get into Charlemagne, (laughs) but he inherited this half of an enormous empire with his brother inheriting the other half. And then there was some conflict between him and his brother who would go on to die quite young, leaving, uh, leaving Charlemagne to take control of his whole half of the empire. The brother, I believe, did have heirs, but none with the diplomatic cachet to stop Charlemagne from just stepping in and taking over the whole fucking thing. Right. Bonus episode on Charlemagne, maybe. Oh yeah. (laughs) He would, he would crown himself Holy Roman Emperor. So it's, it's a whole thing. Uh, (laughs) The Treaty of Verdun though, outlined the partition of Charlemagne's empire between the three grandsons. So those are Charles II, known as Charles the Bald, uh, Louis II, known as Louis the German, and Lothar the First, unfortunately, no nickname. Oh, that's too bad. They were on a they were on a roll there. I know. I mm. should have I should have done him first, but either way. I think we should we should start doing this nicknaming thing again. I agree. I would like to be Kate the something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the empire would be divided into the following three sections. So there's Francia Occidentalis, and that is the westernmost division, and that encompasses a lot of what is modern Western France. Mm -hmm. This region was given to Charles the Bald and would eventually become Western Francia, which would in turn become France. This is, I believe, the the precursor to modern France being sort of established right now. Uh, The central division was known as Francia Media, and this is basically everything between where Charles's dominion ends to the Rhine. Okay. Uh, This encompasses parts of Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, Eastern France, Western Switzerland, and Northern Italy. Cool. And this went to Lothar I. Uh, Francia Orientalis was the easternmost division, and that would contain the majority of modern Germany, all of Charlemagne's empire east of the Rhine. Okay. This would eventually become Eastern Francia, which would in turn become Germany. It's very King Lear. Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I believe small parts of eastern Switzerland are contained within Francia Orientalis at this point because okay. we're not nearly done with the the places Switzerland is going to go. Yeah. <laughs> so when the Holy Roman Empire reformed in the 11th Empire, this time or in the 11th century, <laughs> this time under German rulers, all of modern Switzerland would be encompassed within the empire. Okay. Uh, Power was really decentralized, though, under this structure, which allowed a number of feudal dynasties to accumulate power within the region. And there are two houses of particular note that would come out of Switzerland during this region, and those are the Habsburgs and the Savoys. These are both 
really important historical dynasties. Names I recognize. So the Habsburgs sure. were a family of German royals that I would think most listeners will have at least heard of. They held immense amounts of power throughout Central Europe, particularly through Germany, Austria, and Hungary. Mm. Their uh, Austria-Hungary empire would be dissolved at the end of World War One. Right. Uh, the Savoys were a family of Italian rulers who originally owned the region of Savoy on that sort of Italian, French, Swiss hinterlands there. Okay. Uh, they would accumulate further land from there and become dukes under the Holy Roman Empire. Mm. When the Kingdom of Italy was eventually unified, the House of Savoy were at its head as the kings. Okay. Uh, so that dynasty would last until like a year or two after the end of World War II, uh, in which the Savoy line had served as figurehead kings for the political line and were exiled from Italy. Okay. Uh, just a quick rundown on who those families are. <laughs> but by the 13th century, the Habsburgs and Savoys had pretty much consolidated all of the political power in Switzerland between the two of them. Uh, the Habsburgs had the greater share of this power, but the Savoys did have pretty solid dominion over the far west of the country. As the Habsburgs gained power within Germany, though, a lot of communities in Switzerland would start to bristle against. It no longer feels like we're being ruled by like Swiss upstarts. Now we're just mm -hmm. being ruled by German royals and yeah. that doesn't feel good. Yeah. Uh, is, I think, a lot of the reason that there started to be some contention here is the Habsburgs stopped being seen as Swiss. Uh, so a lot of these small communities would get together and form the Swiss Confederation. And the Swiss Confederation at the time was really a political entity created out of necessity. The German leadership was so distant and it was just getting worse at fixing the little day-to-day -day problems that local leadership needs to they fix. Don't care anymore. Flooding, forestry, yeah. stuff like that. Like the they boring just stuff. <laughs> the stuff that you need to be able to respond to right away, though. Yeah, yeah. They they weren't there for. So these rural communities. The interesting thing about them is, out of some, I didn't really understand the justification for why this happened, but out of some legal necessity, these were not communities that belong to any sort of count or duke they were directly crown owned communities okay which gave them a special sort of independence because as we've established the crown doesn't fucking have time for all of yeah. the day-to-day -day stuff that these guys want to do so they come together and they start making their own like local government confederation and they uh They would elect their own leaders, and in 1291, they would officially declare the Swiss Federation. This is now celebrated as the birth of the Swiss nation, but it wasn't really seen as anything of the sort at it's the just time. Like a couple of dudes. Being like I like, said, yeah, it's just some farming communities being <laughs> like, it looks like daddy's not watching. Let's get together <laughs> yeah. and do this right. Okay. Um, that's interesting that it's still acknowledged like that. I, I think well, that's it, cool. It wouldn't be viewed as anything of the sort until I think the late 1800s sort of thing. Okay. Like I think it's 600 years later that we start calling that the birth of the Swiss nation. Okay. I only mention it now because we are right now acknowledging it as the birth yes. of the Swiss nation. Yes. Um, 
Throughout the 14th century, more cantons would join the Federation. It would expand its borders pretty significantly uh, at this point, giving it a lot more political power and a lot more economic prosperity. Non-Habsburg rulers throughout Europe started to really like the Swiss Confederation <laughs> because they were just... A, a quiet little thorn in the Habsburg side. <laughs> so other rulers throughout Europe started to to grant privileges to the Swiss and started to be like, we're going to look out for you because you kind of rock. <laughs> and Germans who were unhappy with Habsburg rules started defecting to Switzerland. Oh, that's hilarious. Okay, good for them. <laughs> Through this period, though, it's it's important not to look at the Confederation as a single political entity. Okay. It it really is at this point a loosely aligned group of of regions with some interests that converge and some that diverge. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not perfect. There's a lot of conflict between these cantons over internal borders, language laws. The uh, Canton of Zurich, in particular, would come into conflict conflict with the rest of the Confederacy when they tried to claim some land. Uh, this guy basically had died and didn't have a legitimate heir. Mm -hmm. And Zurich was just like, well, then it's ours. Uh, <laughs> the Confederacy went to war with Zurich and defeated them and then readmitted them to the Confederacy, being like, you're not allowed to expand westward. <laughs> so Zurich was like, all right, and just started buying <laughs> land east of them. <laughs> So they're like on the eastern border of the confederacy i thought that was pretty hilarious i'm picturing a group of dudes sitting around a table and someone being like so this sucks but there's a big old loophole yeah like going go west you're taking land from other confederacy members there's yeah. the other the other people don't have problem with zurich expanding they have a problem with zurich expanding into their land yeah so zurich just takes the hint and starts expanding east yeah it's great. Which I thought was super fun. Uh, in the 1470s, the Confederation, despite this really contentious history, would end up allying with the Habsburgs against a guy named Charles the Bold. And Charles the Bold was Duke of Burgundy, and he was trying to resurrect the Lotharingian Empire. Okay. So that's named for Lothar I, this, yes. this guy who had the central division of the three. Uh, was he bold? He, he was. He went to war with fucking everybody and cool. didn't do great. Uh, <laughs> As I suppose can be expected. But new, new cities and cantons are still being admitted to the Confederation throughout the 15th century. In 1499, Habsburg ruler Maximilian I was making political moves to expand his power over Europe, and his gaze sort of fell on the Confederation and some of their allies. So there are, it's at this point, sort of the Confederation and their allies, mm -hmm. a lot of which are cantons today, but were not official cantons at the time. Cool. Um, Maximilian I would join with a group of German nobles known as the Swabian League to invade a Swiss region of Graubünden, which would ignite the Swabian War. Peace would be declared by the end of 1499 in a move that left the Swiss as part of the Holy Roman Empire, but really just in name only. Mm. Uh, and the Swiss are looking to consolidate their power further because they've kind of never had it so good in yeah. terms of what they have the ability to do. Yeah. 
In the early 1500s, France and Italy would begin fighting over the region of Milan. I I don't even know actually off the top of my head whether it's in modern day France or Italy, but it's it's certainly not in Switzerland. Let's just put it that way. Milan? Yeah. I think is in Italy. Is in Italy? I okay. think so. I don't know for sure, but I think. Uh, but it's again in that sort of hinterlands between the three countries. Mm-hmm. And Switzerland had some historical ties to Milan. I, I'm not going to get too deep into it, but That's they were like, hey, we might as well toss our hats into the yeah. ring too. <laughs> And they would end up in a battle with the French where they get utterly decimated, just Mm -hmm. completely crushed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the French, to their credit, were fairly generous with Switzerland in the peace negotiations. They allowed the Confederation to remain in existence. They didn't even... I don't even think they like took any land or anything from them. They just Just, slapped them on the wrist and, yeah, go back home. (laughs) So... (laughs) This is really the last time we're going to see Switzerland trying to be a political power that shapes what the countries around it are doing. It's not really what they're known for. No, they're known for the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And really, we're entering a period of history where all of these nations surrounding it, like between France and Germany, from now until World War II, like... (laughs) They are neighbored by superpowers on both sides. It's true. It's true. So Switzerland at this point is fully recognized not as a country, but as a geopolitical entity of some sort. Like if you something if you were to stand at the border and ask a German guy, hey, what's over there? He'd go, oh, the Swiss Confederation. Like people knew what it was. Yeah. It wasn't quite a country, but the political setup of the nation, the way that they're, it's such an incredibly decentralized government. Mm -hmm. They, they don't have the sort of capacity for single minded tasks, the way these complete monarchies around them do. So while a monarchy would just be like, we're invading these people and now we're doing it. Switzerland would go, do we want to invade these people? Let's take a poll of all the cantons. <laughs> yeah. And then it would be like 13 to 12 and they'd have to go, all right, well, 13 people are into it. and like, <laughs> It's democratic. More. It's democratic. It is. I'm not saying it's but a bad thing, but it means that done. they can't really push up against the single minded monarchies that yeah. are working all around them. It's a different system. And the other ones... We know they're decisive. Yeah. They make their choices and they just go for it. However, there's going to be a little bit of a wrench thrown into the gears for everybody in the early 16th century mm-hmm. when our old buddy the Reformation comes along. Yay, the Reformation! And the the Reformation in Switzerland really took on a life of its own. Switzerland had, by this point, developed a robust printing industry, and there were a lot of famed thinkers living in the region. Uh, Zurich in the 16th century would adopt into law the Protestant ideals of a Swiss theologian by the name of Huldrych Zwingli. Uh, And he's an enormously important thinker in the early days of Swiss Protestantism. He, like, I think he was sort of took over Zurich and ruled it (laughs) in his vision for the rest of his life. Okay. Uh, 
a lot of towns too would follow suit and adopt similar rules to the ones that Zwingli had put in place. Probably Zwingli actually, uh, in, Mm. in Zurich, uh, a lot of staunchly Catholic towns refused to follow suit. And this would lead to a lot of conflict along sectarian lines. And it sort of has all of the trappings of like major military conflict about to happen. That seems like it mostly didn't like people died for sure. Yeah. But it, it never escalated as far as I can tell into like full on civil war, at least not for long. Like skirmishes more. Yeah. Like there's, there's a famous event uh, in a battle at the, the town of Capel M. Albus. This moment is known as the Capelay Milch Soup. So basically the, there are armies here from Zug on one side and from Zurich on the other. (laughs) And that what most likely happened is some guys at the front line from bordering communities had like gotten together, shared a drink, had a laugh, gone back to the camp. Okay. Uh, and that's really what eyewitness accounts describe, but it probably apocryphally became this event called the milk soup of Kappel, where the, the forces from Zug bring over milk because that region provides a lot of dairy and the forces from Zurich bring over bread because they grow a lot of wheat and they combined them into this soup that they like cooked on the front line and shared between the armies. Okay. Um, Why'd they make soup though? And just eat it separately. I don't know. Okay. I, I did actually, <laughs> if if I wasn't so in love with so many of the Swiss dishes that I have already tried, there's a chance I would have tried to. There are many recipes out there for milk soup. Okay. Um, also, we did like a milk soup last week. That's so. true. That's true. Too much milk soup. But that's probably like third on my choices for food this week. Milk okay. soup was up there. What was second? Uh, roasty, but it's too labor intensive. What is that again? Like shredded potato pancake things that are amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's okay. (laughs) Uh, French refugees from the Reformation would find a home in Western Switzerland, particularly in Geneva. Uh, among these people are John Calvin, who would be possibly the most influential writer in yeah uh like the protestant reformation john calvin is an immensely important guy and he would kind of pull a zwingli here he (laughs) as the legend goes at least he was passing through geneva and someone was like hey you're that preacher guy from france aren't you why don't you give a sermon and he just fucking put down roots and rebuilt (laughs) the city in his image (laughs) kind of great though yeah so calvin would really reform a lot of early protestantism from his home in geneva yeah is where he was based uh the sheer volume and variety of political and religious thought coming from different regions of the swiss confederation would have the individual canton governments at pretty much a standstill with each other though at mm-hmm. every single decision <laughs> like it's such a vibrant and and interesting time but that also means that everyone's got really fucking strong <laughs> opinions on everything done. yeah so and 
this is probably an uncharitable reading of history. Let me preface it by saying <laughs> that. But as far as I can tell, the Thirty Years' War rolls around and ravages Europe. It's kind of a proto-world war in its way. Mm. And Switzerland... For 30 years, what do we do? What do we do? We can't agree on what to do. <laughs> Option paralysis. Stayed neutral. <laughs> Over the next century. Giving them some thoughts about how to play it later. As the French went to war with basically anybody who would have them. Yeah. The neutrality actually became signed into Swiss law. Okay. So they're they're always neutral no matter yeah. no matter what. Yep. Okay. It's not going to reflect well on them by the end of this episode. No, I can imagine not. All right. We'll we'll proceed. So, <laughs> during this period, there's a lot more of internal conflicts, uh, which would lead to the Protestants gaining political dom- dominance over the Confederacy going forward in like the mid 17th century. So coming towards the end of the 17th century and the turn of the 18th, these local councils are beginning to act more like sort of aristocratic city states than the rural councils that they were created as. Yeah. Uh, and this would coincide with a huge expulsion of John Calvin's followers from France, leading to a massive influx of refugees into the country. And this created a huge economic boom. It's during this period where a lot of these French people are watchmakers and you start to see like there were watchmakers in Switzerland before this for sure. But this is where it starts to gain its reputation as like a world renowned watchmaking paradise. Cool. Uh, so in the 18th century, the booming Swiss economy ran into the same problem as so many other European nations at the time. Do you want to take a guess? Wait, what year is it? Uh, it is the late 18th century, so like 1798, 1797. And there's economic problems? No, no, this is military problems. Oh, the military the economy problems. is doing great. It's going to run into a wall known as Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, Napoleon! <laughs> I'm sitting here, I'm like, it's too early for a lot of stuff, but... Yeah, uh, it's right on time for Napoleon. Yeah, so throughout the French Revolution and uh, the wars that came out of it, yeah. uh, Switzerland attempted to remain neutral through all of this, but they hold a really important strategic location, so Napoleon yeah. would invade Bern in 1798. Yep. Uh, this coincided with a series of peasant revolts in response to these sort of aristocratic city-states that are starting to form, mm-hmm. Uh and the the peasant revolts would greatly hinder the Swiss ability to respond to Napoleon's invasion. Mm. Napoleon invading in 1798 will pretty much mark the end of the Swiss Confederation after 500 years. Wow. There will be things going forward that are called the Swiss Confederation, but both in my mind and at least from what I saw in a lot of the sources, there's a pretty clear delineation between pre and post Napoleon Swiss Confederation. Okay. Uh, 
in place of the deposed confederation at this point, though, is the Helvetic Republic. This is an entity that was put in place by Napoleon, and it would last for only five years. So from 1798 to 1803, uh, greater civil rights would be afforded to the people under the Helvetic Republic, and the divisions among the cantons would be shifted around and some more places would be admitted. Uh, the French-inspired constitution for the Helvetic Republic was not well received by everybody across the country. That meant that the brief existence of the Republic was marked by skirmishes and disagreements throughout the whole former confederation. So by 1803, French troops would pull out and the region would become the Swiss Confederation again, though, like I said, not really as it was before. A lot of the changes that had been made when it became the Helvetic Republic, would really stay on the books through okay. this. Uh, the new confederation, too, was sort of, I mean, against their will, like they lost in the war. They're now yeah. in a defensive alliance with Napoleon, so thousands of Swiss citizens are going to die fighting Napoleon's wars. That sucks. All right. After Napoleon fell in 1815 more cantons would be added to the confederation after the congress of vienna which we've talked about is where they divided up all of napoleon's shit yeah. <laughs> it was in 1815 that the powers of europe collectively guaranteed the ongoing neutrality of the swiss confederation okay so being neutral just means that like when other people have conflicts you don't get involved if yeah, you get you invaded can, you respond it means still. that it's it's on the books that me come me not coming to war for you is not me breaking our alliance right it's just we're not going to war with anybody yeah not you and not the other guy okay okay uh so the economy began to recover after napoleon's fall and the country had been slowly industrializing in like 1814 early 1815 mm -hmm. but in like two years three years after napoleon's fall like the whole fucking country is industrialized it happens so quickly as far as i can tell and uh the this would happen along with the old trade lines reopening because mm -hmm. Yeah. All the people who don't want to trade with them because they're allied with Napoleon are now willing to again. Yes. Uh, in 1847, a civil war broke out between liberal confederation forces and a group of Catholic cantons, a separatist group known as the Sonderbund. Uh, the Sonderbund would lose the war pretty soundly, mm -hmm. and the liberal government would write a new constitution in 1848. This time, I think pretty heavily inspired by the U.S. Constitution, but adapted to Switzerland's unique geographical needs. Yeah, they are unique geographically. Yeah. That's kind of cool, too. Okay, yep. This constitution would name Bern the capital of Switzerland, which it still is today. Mm -hmm. uh, this is also the official establishment of the modern state of Switzerland Kay. in 1848. In World War I, Switzerland continued their neutrality, though this would cause a lot of political tension between the French and German-speaking regions mm -hmm. of the country. Mm -hmm. um, after World War I, the League of Nations would be established with its headquarters in Geneva. After, uh, sorry, the same building is still the UN's European headquarters. Switzerland was made exempt from any joint military action by the League of Nations, but was still considered a member. So okay. that's really, I think, what their neutrality yeah. allows them to do. Yeah. Um, 
communism and Nazism would grow sort of an equal measure in Switzerland throughout the 30s, but neither would really become a dominant political ideology there. And the Swiss government was pretty friendly with the fascist governments. They were one of the first to recognize Franco's regime in Spain, for one. Um, I believe they were the first to recognize Mussolini's conquests of Africa. Oh, guys. Yeah. Do better. (laughs) When World War II broke out, the Swiss government raised troops on the borders, basically prepared to protect themselves from a German invasion, but still maintaining their neutrality. Okay. Uh, Fortifying the Alps pretty heavily against the invasion. They worked, though, with the German government to protect their interests. So they signed a number of financial treaties with Nazi Germany, uh, including one to supply weapons to the German army. Uh, The Swiss bank also infamously purchased gold that the Nazis had looted from Western European banks as well as from directly off the necks and fingers of concentration camp victims. God, like, oh, no, no, no. German currency at the time was not really being accepted a lot of places abroad, so the Swiss francs that they got from these transactions allowed them to finance their war effort in a way they couldn't before. Yeah. It's Uh. a really... Filthy. That's dirty thing. Though. Yeah, it and is. Just, you can't be neutral when there's Nazis. No, y- you can't. Or at least, if you are, everybody's gonna hate you. Well, and certainly, from what I can see, Switzerland has used their position of quote unquote neutrality <laughs> through the ages to to get favor from whoever seems the most powerful at the time. Like one of the sources I looked at in this, this period where uh, France is going to war with everybody there, the, the source was even like, because their stance of neutrality implicitly favored France, France was very kind to them. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's what neutrality is. Yeah. Uh, Just, I'm not pro war, but, I'm not pro Nazi either. Yeah, this is obviously fucking disgusting. Yeah, I'm I'm just gonna say that straight up. It's not okay. Uh it's so okay. Switzerland also would accept next to no refugees during and after the war, only allowing those who were passing through to a third country. Jewish refugees, thousands of Jewish refugees yeah, attempting bet. to flee Germany through Switzerland during the war would be turned away at the border. God damn you. Ugh. Okay. That's bad too. Yeah. It's it's really and I don't think their reputation has fully recovered from it. I I mean they're they're talked about a lot as as sweet cheese eaten mountain folk, but I I do think that if you talk about Switzerland for longer than 10 or 15 minutes that Nazi gold is inevitably going to come up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. It's 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 a pretty enormous black mark on the country's history yeah, and really would good. damage their reputation on the global stage coming out of World War II. Yeah. Uh, they would manage to rehabilitate that a bit throughout sort of the 60s through the 80s as they worked as mediators during the Cold War. Okay. Uh, which, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, Doesn't undo the other stuff, but they're trying something, I guess. 
something I thought was interesting is when the UN formed after World War II, they continued to use, like I said, the same building as their European headquarters. Uh, Switzerland, however, refused to join until they were guaranteed complete neutrality ongoing, Mm. which the UN didn't want to give them. Mm -hmm. So Switzerland, despite hosting the UN... Didn't participate. Didn't participate. They participated actually a lot they just weren't a member state (laughs) okay uh it's weird uh they they were made to pay back hundreds of millions of francs to the central banks of europe uh to make up for the gold purchases from the nazis right okay uh they would become a member state of the un finally in 2002 as the result actually of a popular vote referendum Uh, They would become the first country to join the UN as the result of a popular vote. Interesting. They, interestingly enough, have also not joined the European Union, although they are a founding member of the European Free Trade Agreement. That's very confusing. Uh, And that's something that most EU members are also a part of. Right. And Switzerland's largest trading partner is the EU. Okay. So... This brings us up pretty much to the modern day. Yeah. And that's where I'm going to cut off my history section here. You got to stop somewhere. So let's talk a bit about some fun facts. Fun facts. I love the fun facts. Oh, such a fun (laughs) part of the show. We've got, there's so many famous people, (laughs) so many famous people. Probably I'm not going to know who any of them are. (laughs) I'm going to be dropping some like triple a list names just in the middle of this all casual (laughs) and like there are some big names that i am not going to get to particularly a a number of brilliant mathematicians and scientists whose work i am no nowhere near smart enough to summarize on this show okay so i'm gonna tip our hats yeah to the the great stem mines coming out of switzerland Of which there have been many, (laughs) many. Uh, So we're going to start off with H.R. Geiger. And he is a Swiss artist whose work was a lot of like airbrushings of people melding with machines. Okay. Uh, He's perhaps best known for his Oscar winning design work on the Alien franchise with Ridley Scott. Where he designed all the aliens and shit. Cool. Uh, his work has been incredibly influential in like tattoo art and heavy metal culture, which he's done a bunch of album covers and stuff for heavy metal bands. That's so neat. Yeah. I, I thought that was really interesting. I, I'd heard of him a couple times. If, um, if anyone wants to learn a bit more about H.R. Geiger, he'll be talked about in the movie Hodorowski's Dune, a documentary about the the best adaptation of dune that never was but uh hr geiger was hired to work on the movie it was just never made uh incredible incredible movie uh Henri nestle is a german swiss food manufacturer who would make his fortune in the 1860s being at the forefront of the development of commercial baby formulas this so, is nestle like yeah yeah nestle he he wow. didn't invent the first baby formula, but he invented, I think, the first good one, sure. as far as I could sure. tell. He his came out on the market like, you know, a year or two after the first one and pretty quickly became the formula of choice for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh this would lead into 1875. He would hire a fellow Swiss guy named Daniel Peter, and they would work together to invent milk chocolate. Really? 
Yeah. Milk chocolate? Just the two of them? Yeah. I love milk chocolate. So <laughs> I have, I've now covered Guatemala, the birthplace of chocolate, and yeah. Switzerland, the birthplace of milk chocolate. Great. Uh, in 1879, these guys would form the Nestle Corporation, which to this day is the largest food company in the world. They're huge. They they're everybody. also fucking terrible. I know. Yeah, I know. They're, they're bad, bad people. They're taking everybody's drinking water, right? Yeah, yeah. And just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still cool they invented milk chocolate. He couldn't have seen this coming, but do better, Nestle. <laughs> <laughs> Jean-Luc Godard is uh, still alive, apparently. I was surprised to learn that, but he is a uh, French-Swiss filmmaker who has been unbelievably influential on Western cinema since his first film in 1960. Uh, he's probably best known for his first film, Breathless, as well as The Little Soldier, which I believe would be the fourth film released by him, but the second film he made as it was banned by the French government for a number of years. I think I've heard of both of those. They're, like I said, he is a, a titan yeah. of film. Cool. Like, even though we went to school for, for theater and not for film, I wouldn't be surprised if Godard was mentioned in one or two of our classes. He yeah. is, un, I, I, he's probably mentioned in like La Vie Boheme in Rent and shit. Like he's an immensely, immensely important guy. Cool. He is a really political filmmaker and he's cited as an influence as people by people like Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino, D.A. Panabaker, like nice. huge people look up to Godard as a huge influence. Next up, I'm not going to get too much into his many accomplishments, but uh, Carl Jung was a Swiss psychiatrist huh? and psychoanalyst <laughs> seen as the father of analytical psychology. Well, I'm sure I knew that when I took psych, but amazing. <laughs> Also in the field of psychiatry is Hermann Rorschach, best known for his oh, famous inkblot test. That guy. And That's th cool. <laughs> there, there have been times where people have criticized the inkblot test as pseudoscience, but I do think that's a matter that's very much up for discussion. Like, I, I don't think it's a thing that's been debunked. I think it's, yeah. it's something that people talk about a lot. It is the, I believe, the second most researched uh, personality measure hmm. in the psychiatric world. Interesting. The other reason I want to mention Ermon Rorschach is because everybody should look up a picture of him. Holy <laughs> shit. He is so good looking. Oh my God. Ermon Rorschach can get it. If you Google image search a picture like his name, you will find a bunch of really good side-by-side -side comparisons of him and Brad Pitt. Like, that's what this guy looks like. He is fucking stunning. You're showing me this on the break. Oh, for sure. I'll okay. link to one in the show notes. Okay. Uh, next up, like I said, I'm going to just casually drop some AAA names here. Uh, Albert Einstein was a German-born physicist who would renounce his German citizenship to attend school in Zurich. He would become a Swiss citizen in 1901 and would remain one until his death in 1955. He is best known for his theory of relativity and for his work developing the theory of quantum mechanics, neither of which, as I said, I am anywhere near smart enough to explain on this show. But obviously we've all heard of Albert Einstein. He was practically the Dalai Lama of science. Like it's true. He had great hair. 
Yeah, he <laughs> just just an incredible person. And if you haven't taken the time to just like sit down in your life and read his Wikipedia article from start to finish, like I'm not saying you need to read a book. That's a lot of effort. <laughs> Take an hour out of your life and read the Wikipedia article on Albert Einstein. Skip all the hard sciencey shit. Just learn about his life. He is fascinating. Next up, we've got another scientist named Albert, and this is Albert Hoffman. He is a Swiss chemist, best known as the first person to synthesize and take LSD. Huh. He would synthesize it first in 1938 when working on completely unrelated pharmaceutical work and sort of shelve it away. And then he was looking at it again in 1943 and I think sort of, you know, got a drop on his finger licked his finger and had to go and lie down because his day had taken a very strange turn. Three days later, he would purposefully dose himself for the first time. And uh, this, I I had never heard of this. I, I saw that the day he purposefully took this first dose of LSD, sort of the first conscious acid trip of all time, mm-hmm. uh, he would start to come up on the drug while riding home on his bicycle. So I I think it's April 19th is known in some communities as Bicycle Day. (laughs) (laughs) Albert Hoffman would also be the first person to isolate the active ingredient in hallucinogenic mushrooms. Huh. Just a, a pioneer of hallucinogens. Indeed. Indeed. I feel a lot of people who would admire him maybe don't know his name. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Spiri is a Swiss author best known for her children's book, Heidi, one of the best selling books of all time. I loved that movie when I was a kid. (laughs) I watched it all the time. The book, I didn't write down how many languages it's been translated into, but many, many languages. And it is in terms of sales, it's roughly on par with Lolita, Anne of Green Gables, Black Beauty and Charlotte's Web. Like. It is one of the Titans, like 50 million plus sales. Cool. Uh, Roger Federer is a Swiss tennis player, currently ranked number 16 in the world, but he's sort of on the downswing of his career a little bit. He's been around a fucking while. Yeah, he's had an incredible He has held the number one position in the world for a total of 310 weeks throughout his career, including a world record 237 consecutive weeks at number one. That's incredible. His 20 Grand Slam men's titles are also a world record shared with him between uh, Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic. And I'm not a tennis expert, but I would think it's not a controversial opinion to say that some order of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic are probably the three greatest men's tennis players of all time. Yes. I think those are the only, besides like, Serena and Venus yeah. Williams. Those are the only tennis player names I would recognize just like in conversation with people. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to be like, who? And then you have to explain to me about tennis, which you don't want to do. Next up, saving them for last because I'm a big hockey fan. We've got <laughs> Roman Yossi is a Swiss NHL player who is captain of the Nashville Predators since 2017. He won the Norris Trophy as the league's best defenseman in 2020 and is one of the absolute best defensemen in the world right now. Like, Yosi's an incredible player. 
He would be drafted 38th overall in the 2008 NHL draft, and he is the highest scoring Swiss player in NHL history. What team does he play for now? Nashville. Oh, Nashville. He's, yeah, he's been their captain since 2017. Cool. Uh, Nico Hischier is also a Swiss NHL player. He was drafted first overall in the 2017 NHL draft, becoming the first Swiss player to do so, and is the captain of the New Jersey Devils. So wow. there are actually two Swiss NHL captains right now, which That's I thought really was really cool. Yeah. Into a couple small things. Now it's home to three of the 10 largest ski resorts on earth, uh, including Zermatt, which is where I visited, which is seventh. Yeah. Uh, the largest in Canada, which is Whistler, obviously, mm-hmm. ranks 11th on that list. Oh, wow. Okay. So they have they have three s- ski resorts bigger than Whistler in Switzerland. And we have a lot of snow and mountains here. Yeah. So. <laughs> they are, per capita, the world's largest consumer of chocolate, consuming <laughs> roughly 10.3 kilograms of chocolate per person a year. I mean, can you blame them? It's so good. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I, uh, I did reference this earlier in the episode, but there are over 7,000 lakes within the small country. That's amazing. And so many. I actually, I must have missed this in my Vatican City research, but Switzerland and the Vatican City are the only two countries on earth with square flags. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Isn't it? I think it's um, Tibet maybe where they have a a little pointy triangle one. Oh yeah, I think you're right. I think. Yeah. Which is cool too. Um, Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I'm intrigued always about people with... Not rectangular flags, because there's no rule that says you have to have a rectangle one, but everybody does it anyway. <laughs> so we are going to take a break now. We're going to eat some raclette, yeah. and we are going to listen to the Swiss psalm. I'm really excited. <laughs> Welcome back to In All of Us Command. We have just had a little listen to Swiss Psalm, the Swiss national anthem. I liked it. It's not bad, right? It's It reminds me of Iceland's. Yeah, that's fair. It reminds me of America's, actually. There's there's a couple points where if, you, if you're only kind of listening, it could be the Star Spangled Banner. Yes, in that third version with the electric guitar. Oh, there, absolutely. There well, parts, he was clearly doing a call doing out to purpose, Hendrix. Right? Yeah. But I was, I was listening to it, and I kept... Because I know the American one so well, I kept like waiting for it to 
start never did and i was like oh well i i was saying to you as we were listening to the anthems like hendrix's cover of the star spangled banner is so iconic and will almost certainly no matter which of us draws america will be one of the versions we look at i think it has to be right right and it's it's genuinely shocking to me that this is the first country we found with a hendrix knockoff yeah it's true. That's it seems like so easy. Like every country should have one. <laughs> this guy wasn't even that good. I know. The get, bar to entry is not that high. Get started, everyone. We want <laughs> Hendrix covers from all of you. <laughs> I want a Canadian one. Oh, I'm sure there's a Canadian one. Yeah. We're right next door. It's true. But the anthem does not allow for it. Uh, there's there's been some fun stuff done with the Canadian anthem. I guess. I guess. So to address the question you asked me way back at the beginning of the episode, mm-hmm. uh, we were talking about lakes in Switzerland versus lakes in Canada. Yeah. And Canada does have the largest like amount of land covered by lakes in the world. Okay. Uh, we have over two million lakes. What? Right? We barely have two million people. <laughs> we have... <laughs> There's like 17 people per lake in this country. I wish that was how they like allotted cottages. Be like, here's yours and here's yours. And you'd go up and there'd be 17 other people. So many people would just be living on frozen lakes year round. Not year round. I mean, for like your summertime vacation cottage. But yeah, many of them are in the tundra. I'm sure completely inhospitable. Just get eaten by black flies and. Uh, so I, I didn't see, like, concentration of lakes statistics, okay. but uh, we might have Switzerland even beat there. I think we might. Uh, <laughs> 7,000 7, is a pretty good number, but 2 million is a truly astounding number. 2 million is a lot of lakes. It's a lot of lakes. It's cool to know, though. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about the history of the Swiss anthem. I don't have a ton here, but I've got a little bit that we can get into. Yeah. So the original sort of de facto anthem of Switzerland was a song that was set actually to the tune of God Save the Queen. It Why? was Um <laughs> I think just like the it was called Roofs Do Mein Vaterland. So I don't actually have an English translation for that, but something about Fatherland. Yeah. Um I think he just didn't really have another tune. So it caused a lot of confusion when like British and Swiss people were together and they each tried to play their anthems. Okay, it just Okay. And this went on for 150 years before someone wrote a new tune to Roofs Do Mein Vaterland. So many countries. It was 1911 it was written, and 1961 it got a new melody. So fully 150 years. Oh my god. (laughs) That's so weird. That's so weird. Why? And, like, the thing is, too, that, like, through all of this... When in the history when we talked about it, Switzerland did not have that many interactions with the British. Yeah. They don't bump up that much. No. Why God save the Queen? Who fucking knows? Why? Because they don't bump up that much. They didn't think it would I come guess, up. But obviously it's gonna come up sometime. Okay. It's just it's relatively easy to get a tune for your national anthem. Do what everyone else did, make it a competition, 
someone will submit something that'll be half decent. You don't have to rip off God Save the Queen. So okay. this this God Save the Queen song was never officially the Swiss national anthem, but it did okay. sort of function that way for a long time. Yeah. 30 years after it was written, however, uh, a guy named Leonard Widmer had written a poem. And that poem was then adapted into music by a guy named Alberic Swissage. And uh, he took this poem and and made it a popular patriotic song. So it was sung really popularly at national events. You would, if you were to ask a person in this era of Switzerland, like what's your national song? I think the, their answer would be like, well, it's kind of a toss up between this God save the queen ripoff <laughs> and Swiss song. Okay. Um, so it was made kind of an interim anthem, uh, in 1961, they were kind of giving it a, a trial period. <laughs> Let's try this on as our anthem and see how it feels. Okay. And you know what? It felt pretty good. So in 1965, they adopted it indefinitely, but not necessarily permanently. They were like, this is our anthem going forward, but they weren't like, this is our anthem for time immemorial. Maybe not to offend the people who were still attached to God Save the Queen. Maybe. Um, there was a competition in 1971 or 1979, sorry, to replace it, to see if they could sort of come up with a better sequel for the national anthem. Okay. Uh, and they didn't really like any of them. Okay. So the Swiss song was made the definitive <laughs> anthem of the country in 1981. It's the weirdest, like most lackluster history where everyone's like, yeah, we don't really care. So we'll yeah. just do this. We, we don't like anything better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. This is not okay. the worst choice to be our national anthem. So the thing that a thing that we haven't really come up against that much is this kind of apathy. Oh, and to as far as I can tell, like it was a patriotic song that got sung a lot in the 19th century. But okay. now... No one gives a shit. <laughs> like, um, it's something I saw one or two places is that like a lot of Swiss citizens couldn't even recite any of this to you. Like, okay. well, it's it's not a big deal. Okay. They they okay. are a people who are deeply apathetic to their national anthem, as far as I can tell. There were a couple of like political interest groups throughout the eighties and nineties that tried to start movements to replace it with stuff that reflected well on them and their interests. Yeah. They didn't really go anywhere. In 2013, a branch of the Swiss government held a competition to uh, choose some new lyrics for the anthem. But I'm really confused about what exactly happened with this competition. Okay. As far as I can tell, the the branch of the government that made these lyrics, they did choose a winner, but now they're politely waiting for these new lyrics to become the more popular lyrics before bringing them to the government and saying, hey, maybe we should change these like on the books. But they're like, as far as I can tell, also actively working to popularize these new lyrics, which seems like the most roundabout possible way. That's extremely confusing. You show up to sing your anthem and it's like, which version are we using? So I, I don't think these new lyrics have not only have they not been officially instated, mm -hmm. even though the contest was won in 2013, I don't think the department of the government that held the contest, I don't think they've officially submitted them 
yet to the federal government because they're waiting for them to become like the dominant interpretation or something. Ten or so years after the fact. <laughs> it's been nine already, yeah. so... Jesus. Okay. Well, good luck to you. They um, they certainly weren't the lyrics being sung in any of the versions I looked at. Nope. Well, maybe if they become popular, we'll hear it sometime. What do they sing at the Olympics? Do you know? Probably the official yeah. Widmer lyrics. Have to be, I guess. Okay. So yeah, that's all I've got for the history that's of the an anthem. Yeah, though. it's a bit of a farce, to be honest. <laughs> okay okay i that's hilarious and it's like the actual writing of the thing is like a perfectly normal a dude set a poem to music and then the government just (laughs) was so weird about it for so long oh my god okay i think it's especially cracking me up too because it's so weird and disorganized and other countries have been so proud and patriotic and on board for the whole anthem thing yeah and these guys just there have been a couple that have been pretty apathetic towards it iceland was vatican as well like there's they they don't even mean theirs to be seen as a national anthem no no that's true we're just gonna keep on forcing that square peg into that circular hole and (laughs) but when we did our grand tour of africa for example yeah those those nations you know writing their anthems on independence it's it's a different frame definitely of reference cool all right should we talk about some stuff and write some things yeah i think we should make some lyrics so or some lyrics some ratings so let's talk about lyrics i thought the lyrics were quite beautiful it's very poetic it is i find it a little i don't know a little childish almost it feels like a lullaby like like a Jesus loves me this I know kind of song at some point. It's very religious. And well and like very basic and I know this is going to be like the English translation but like the rhyme scheme for me does not read well. Uh it's very like lullaby children's poetry in the way the the meter of it all reads for me. Perhaps to reinforce your point in the last stanza here it says let us childlike trust him reference to god but anyway basically they're viewing themselves as children in the singing of the anthem yeah but the the music doesn't reflect that for me either the music is quite mature and church-like yeah and it's it's a clash that doesn't really work for me on some level and i don't really know where to take points away from the anthem on that yeah like we've kind of separated the two things, so I yeah. think it's just X Factor. Yeah, probably is what that comes down to. But the lyrics, I don't think they're bad. They're I'm not, not bad. blown away by them. The, some of the imagery is nice. When the Alps glow bright with splendor, that is really nice. I like kind of also the the repetition is is kind of nice at the end of the stanzas. It has some good points. Also. It does. It does. It's it's definitely not bad. I'm just I, I struggle to get very enthusiastic for it. I think I'm probably going to sit around a five and a half on this one. Yeah, I was going to go probably six. 
Let's talk music, which I think is really this anthem's biggest strength. I, I think the music is really beautiful. Yeah, the music is m- certainly more mature than the lyrics, I think. Particularly in the the two non-cheap Hendrix rip-off <laughs> versions, I, yes. I think it really shines through. The, the vocal version in particular is so beautifully done. Such a gorgeous arrangement. Yeah, it's quite ethereal and very nice to listen to. So the the music, I, I do think, reflects well the religiousness of the lyrics. It's just the the almost lullaby feel of the lyrics for me doesn't come through yeah, in it's, the music. It's called Psalm, right? Yeah. So Psalm, yeah. So, it, yeah, it definitely reflects that. I see how you feel the, the dissonance between that and the... The lyrics. But the music, I think I'm probably going to go for an eight. Yeah, I was going to go eight as well. Background story is a, definitely a bit of a unique case. It's pretty funny. It is pretty funny. Which it, gets it some points for me, at least. It lacks some of maybe the political inspiration of some of the other ones we've seen. Yeah. There have been... One or two that have been like genuinely moving to learn about. Yes, that's true. That's true. This for me at the background story, I don't know, it's kind of entertaining. I'm gonna go six for this too, I think. Yeah, I think I'm probably gonna go six and a half. Okay. Historical significance is eh. not gonna score super high for me. We do we reference the Alps, which is a big thing like the alps are so central to swiss geography that they really did demand a shout out yeah um fun fact though that i learned doing my research only 15 percent of the alps are in switzerland really yeah they get such a reputation i know where's the rest of it france uh yeah italy i don't know oh probably france okay interesting it's good to know yeah okay just a, a quick fun fact but i yeah, it it is a very religious nation, at least in its history, if not so much today. I'm not sure. Um, four and a half. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go. What is this historical significance? Yeah. Three and a half. Yeah. And how about X Factor? This doesn't have a ton of X Factor for me. No, it doesn't. And I I want to give it, I think, more than I can in good conscience on the power of those first two versions. Uh, but it it just doesn't work for me as as a whole composition. There's something a little bit off that just just doesn't jive for me yeah i agree i think x X factor for me is gonna be a four a four yeah Yeah. i think i might join you there okay makes me feel better i thought i was being a little harsh so let's take a moment then and total up these scores so it looks like we have another tie in the mix Mm -hmm. Uh, this coming in actually lower than I thought it was going to. Yeah. Uh, this is coming in pretty close to the bottom of the list. Oh. 56 out of a hundred. 
ties it with Ghana above only uh, Brunei and Uganda. Oh, that's not that good. Um, yeah, that's a pretty harsh score. That's a pretty harsh score. <laughs> I think it, it was chiefly the lack of X factor. I think so. That really. And just like inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. General caring about the you, thing. You feel the the muse was not. The, terribly awoken during the creation the, of this anthem. The muse was not. The muse was like, oh, five more minutes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's I think, what I get out of this one. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. So it is time for me to find out what I'm going to be doing it on my is. next episode. I'm going to have a good friend of mine as a guest on that one. My good friend Phil is going to join us, and let's find out what we'll all be learning about together. We need to talk about the food first. Oh, my God. Yes, we do. Yeah. I made raclette. It was so good. I knew I liked it already, but it was so good. <laughs> Definitely not the same as you know if you've got the proper equipment to make it but i i made some potatoes and we got some some pickles and some pickled onions and some bread and some salami we melted the raclette and it was delightful melted cheese is just yeah just a big old pile of melted cheese and potatoes and pickles and who could complain no one certainly not me nope nope All right, let's roll for your next one. Let's roll for it. And the magic 206-sided die has declared number 108. 108 gives you Madagascar. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm going to confidently declare right now? I have an inkling, but would you like to say it anyway? I would love so much to <laughs> say it and then be proven right. It'd be right, yeah. Go ahead. It's an island nation. Indeed, it is an island nation. Yes! <laughs> oh, I love that. I've been wrong every time I've made a prediction about whether <laughs> something's an island nation or not. You're finally getting the hang of it, <laughs> I guess. Well, that'd be great. Okay, so join us next week for um, Kosovo. Yeah, I'm really excited for Kosovo. I'm also very intrigued. I haven't picked what we're going to eat yet. so It's been I a very to... fruitful region for anthems. It's true. It's true. I hope theirs is amazing as well. I hope so. And we'll see what Madagascar has for us in a couple of weeks. All right. Talk to you next week, folks. we get something very wrong? Did we skip an entire part of the story that's worth mentioning? That's very likely, and we'd love to hear the correct version. Please tweet us at IAOUC podcast or send us an email at inallofuscommandpodcast at gmail.com. We record these episodes a bit in advance, so you may not hear a correction right away, but we are not too big to admit we are wrong and it will be corrected.